0: John chapter 11, we'll pick up at 45. Then many of the Jews, which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus, they believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth miracles, many miracles. And we let, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. The Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. Great bumper sticker. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this, John tells us, spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but for that also He should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness in a city that is called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment, That if any man knew where he were, where Jesus was, he should show it unto them that they they might take him. So, you know, we've got this kind of section of treason of, you know, kind of the antagonist between the resurrection of Lazarus and these many of the Jews believing and then this dinner at the house of Simon the leper where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. Kind of the the Holy Spirit takes us, he draws back and he gives us this description of what takes place in a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, we're not sure how John knows this. Uh, John certainly was at Bethany when Lazarus was raised. We don't have any evidence that he then ran with the Pharisees, uh, with those who believed to the Pharisees. Um, we do know that his family was friends with the high priest. We find that in one of the Gospels. Maybe he heard from those, some of those that were there. Maybe he heard from Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who who were no doubt or probably dissenting as this was handed down. Maybe he heard from Saul of Tarsus, who was probably a member of the Sanhedrin at this point, who would be an apostle in the future. We don't know, but somehow he's got the in, inside picture and he tells us about the dialogue that takes place. Lazarus is raised. Many of the people were there and saw it, you know. 4 days he was decomposing. He stunk. You know, everybody's sensory, you know, uh, sent, they were they were involved in this. They saw it, they heard it, they smelled it, you know. And it says then many believed that came up you know, to marry, to comfort her. And then it says, and then some went to the Pharisees. Now, we don't know, and it's the, the language is not demanding. It says, those who had seen those things that Jesus did believed on him, and some of them, which seems to relate back to the, some of those who believed on him, they went their ways to the Pharisees <clears throat> and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, Their motive could have been good. Their motive could have been bad. We don't know. It would seem that they go to the Pharisees and not to the Sadducees. because The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in any of the books of the Old Testament. But the the Torah, the first five books, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in these things. So Lazarus is bad theology for for the Sadducees. So if these people were those who had seen this and believed, it would make sense that they would go to the Pharisees and tell them. The Pharisees were those who, after the Babylonian captivity, they had formed to preserve orthodoxy. They were, were not letting go of the Bible. It, 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 there had been hardening of the categories by this point, but they, you know, those, they, they, they loved the Scripture and wanted to hold to it. So today we would kind of be like Pharisees, you know, in, in a sense. The Sadducees, sadly, were from the, tribe of, the priestly tribe of Zadok, which was a, a, a tribe God had set aside in the Old Testament and will also in the future. And it, they became Zadokites, and it finally you know, it morphs its way to Sadducees. And it's so sad because they don't believe anything at this point in time, and they're in this for the money and for the power. So we have this scene now developed. All of a sudden, the antagonists are made aware of what happened in Bethany and that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Now it tells us their response. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we for this man doeth many miracles? Then gathered a council son with Hedra to seat. We get Sanhedrin from that. uh, And those who sit together, 71 members of the Sanhedrin. It was the official council in Jerusalem. They were legislative, judicial, and executive branch all rolled into one. There were other Sanhedrins different councils in other places, but they were all subject to this Supreme Court in Jerusalem. That's where the decrees came from. And uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, was the one who sat above and ran the whole thing. He was the head guy and a Sadducee. Most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees because the priestly families were involved, but there were Pharisees who were respected. There were scribes. There were others. But this is the first time we see them officially calling together this group of, <clears throat> of men. They had talked about killing Jesus before this. They, tried, they wanted to stone him with stones. But now that someone's been raised from the dead, there are these notable miracles. And they're going to say, you know, what do we, seeing that he doeth, you know, many miracles? And particularly recently, within the last six months, the guy who was born blind, who received his sight and then was taken by the, the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin to be questioned, born blind, now seeing. And now this man, Lazarus, who had been dead four days, Jesus has called him back to life. So they're saying, look, he does many miracles. They're not saying anymore he does it by Beelzebub, They're not saying he's a deceiver. They can't deny what's taken place. And these Jews that came to them evidently were were witnesses of what had taken place. So they say the interesting question is, what do we, because he doeth many miracles? Now that that's from antagonists. That's a great question for you and I to ask ourselves. What do we, because he doeth many things? look at the world that we're living in today we have the world and the flesh and the devil to contend with what do we seeing what he doeth if we're aware of what he's doing his return he's coming he's riding over the nations of the world Daniel tells us he raises up over one nation one person pulls another one down sometimes he raises up over nations even the basest of men everything may look like it's out of control It's all in his hands. And seeing that he doeth many things, what do we? How are we living now? How is all of that kind of meted out to us, as it were? So the Pharisees and the council said, what do we? For this man doeth many things. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. It was coming to that. And the Romans shall come and take away two things, both our place and our nation. So the Sanhedrin had grand jurisdiction, except that the Romans sat on top of it. The Sanhedrin ruled over the religious part of the country. They made sure the shekel was still coming in. The money was still rolling into the temple. Uh, They had jurisdiction. And then even when it came to religious things, if they thought there should be the death penalty, they could come to that decision through a meeting of the Sanhedrin. But they had to come to the Romans to ask permission. They couldn't do them. We're going to see with Jesus, they can't just assassinate him or kill him. They're going to have to go and talk to Pilate. They're going to have to go to the Roman authorities. So they have great jurisdiction. But but they still are under subjection to the Romans. So the question here is: If we don't do anything about this guy, everybody's going to be following him. It's going to look like an uprising. In another place, they said we're going to lose everybody who's following us. They're they're all going to be following him, this Galilean carpenter. And then the Romans, when they see that, they're going to perceive it as an uprising. And they're going to come and take away, they had that authority, both, number one, our place and our nation. And certainly, you you know, you wrangle through all this, the place is the temple. They had that that set them aside, built by Herod the Great, by a Roman, one of the wonders of the world, undoubtedly, and because they had that great jurisdiction that the Romans gave to them, that was their place. There's a meeting hall where they met. They're, they're probably meeting in that place in the temple precincts right here. So he says they're going to come and take away our place and our nation. They're going to bring us into greater subjugation. Sometimes cultures like the Phoenicians, the Assyrians and so forth would take people and just scatter them, drive them to other Parts of the world to break down their singularity and and so forth. Now, the irony here is, of course, we got to do something about Jesus. We got to get rid of this guy. We got to shut him up. We got to get the people, because if we don't, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away the temple, they're going to take away our nation. And of course, 40 years after that, Titus Vespasian comes with the different legions for them. And he takes away their place, the temple, and their nation. They're carried away. The exact thing that they say they want to avoid here comes upon them. That's because their motive here, we don't want to lose our place, our nation, had to do with their own pride, their own position, what they wanted from themselves. It wasn't really a concern for Israel is a religious institution and for the people, the nation. It was very self-centered. Now we're going to hear now Caiaphas speaks up. Caiaphas is the high priest at this point in time. He is a Sadducee. He's the son-in-law of Annas. The people still recognize Annas to some degree. But he comes to power from 18 A.D. to 36 A.D., which is a long period of time for a priest. So he's there all through the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ministry of John, the Baptist. So, you know, he's through all of this, uh, Pilate and all of that. So he's high priest during this time. He will eventually be made to step down by one of the Romans, but he's been given this place, um, Valatus. Uh, Porus, I believe, gives him this place as high priest with Roman permission. He has it. So then one of them named Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, is is named Caiaphas is what he's called, being the high priest. Now John tells us that same year, he's 90 years old, he's looking back, that same year was the year that Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. He says, being high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. (laughs) You know, Josephus tells us that the Sadducees were rude to each other and they were cruel when they spoke. And here certainly, you know, here's the head Sadducee, the high priest telling the rest of them, they're all stupid. You don't know nothing. But this is the most prestigious council in the world. And this guy's looking at him saying, "You, you, you don't know nothing. Again, great bumper sticker. Nor consider, you know, know anything, and you're not considering that it is expedient for us. What what the, the, what is needful for us to do here is that one man should die for the people that the whole nation perish not. Now, in his context, he's not just saying this because he's high priest. And they recognize the high priest can prophesy. What he's saying is this Galilean needs to be put to death for us so that the whole nation, so that everything doesn't come to that end. He says, it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. John then tells us, as an old man, you just think him with a quill in his hand and the Holy Spirit controlling that hand. And this he spake, This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So he tells us something amazing here. He says, Caiaphas is kind of rattling this off. We got to deal with this guy. You guys don't know anything. It's expedient for us, necessary for us, that one person should die and the whole nation doesn't get destroyed. We need to do this. Now, John tells us what was really happening. He was prophesying. God was speaking. Caiaphas thought he had his hands on the steering wheel, but God's telling us here that he had his hands. The Lord has his hands on the steering wheel, not Caiaphas. And there's a plan when the powers that be seem to be unjust, not even immoral, amoral, breaking down everything, wanting to get rid. They, they feel like they have not been successful of, of just shutting down this Galilee guy and his followers. And when the world feels like that, they try to get their plan together so they can just shut this whole thing up. That's the world we're living in today. They don't, they don't like what we believe. And the enemy knows that he needs to break down the church to stop something that's much bigger than just national progress. You and I just, you know, the need in our life is not a president or a prime minister, you know, or, or a ruler. The need in our life is, you know, we have a king. And we have a kingdom. And our king is coming. And his kingdom is going to endure forever. And we can get caught up in all kinds of rabbit trails now. But we have to stay centered. And it says here that Caiaphas is saying what he's saying from you know do this with Jesus, do that with all kinds of people. They want to do whatever they want to do with Jesus. This is the spirit of Caiaphas. But John says he didn't realize it. He says it's expedient that one man die for, on behalf of, instead of, Hooper in the the language, and A.T. Robertson and Linsky, all the grammar guys say, you can't take substitutionary atonement out of that word. It just doesn't work. What he's saying, Caiaphas, the prophecy is, it is expedient that one man die instead of, on behalf of, the people, that the whole nation doesn't perish. And John said he didn't realize, you know, not just speaking of of that nation, but of all of God's children. Here we are scattered around the world today, sitting here. It was necessary, expedient, that Christ would die in our place instead of us, on our behalf. And Caiaphas doesn't, he doesn't have any idea. He's talking about the central things that you and I believe. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, will say, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders. That's what the Pharisees want to shut down. Approved among you by miracles and wonders uh, and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken... And by wicked hands you have crucified him and slain him. What he says here is that what's standing behind this whole movement is substitutionary atonement. The Christ was offered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge. There's something there called a Granville Sharp Rule that makes them both the same thing the determinant counsel and foreknowledge. This is all sovereign. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Isaiah 53 said that the, the, the God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. There's something here of substitutionary atonement that Caiaphas had no idea what he was talking about. And sadly, the world we're in today that doesn't want to hear about this, this Jesus stuff or this Bible, so probably a lot of times because we're such poor representatives, um, they don't understand substitutionary atonement. That Jesus had to die for in our place or instead of us. That there's a, he was a substitute. He died in our place. This is vicarious atonement. When we say vicarious, the idea is someone is dying who doesn't deserve to die On behalf of someone else. And that's the picture that's put in front of us here. And the truth is, right in the word vicarious itself, there's a divine injustice. There's divine injustice. Jesus is that vicarious one who dies in a place he doesn't deserve to die in. And he does it on behalf of someone else. Look, you and I, Peter says, should grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's enough injustice in that that you and I even know we could say, well, this ain't right. He died for me. And we take hold of that by faith. And then as we grow in the faith, we realize, wait, there's still a traitor that lives within. I've still got this problem. There's still things in me that aren't Christ-like. And we have to grow in grace. And we have to realize vicarious atonement is not just. It's unjust. It's injustice, that a completely righteous one, holy, pure, would die because of my sin, in my place, and bear my sins. And he was not the kind of sacrifice that the lambs were. You know, they were drugged to the altar and sacrificed. And that was a picture of something. And again, as they came to offer the sacrifice, the the worshiper was never examined. It was the lamb that was examined. It had to be without spot and blemish. It was a foregone conclusion that the worshiper had spots and blemish. That's why he was bringing the lamb. And the picture here is this pure, holy, spotless one dies instead of you and I. And that's injustice. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but the the, the Spirit of God, Christ, lived in me who died for me. He said, loved me and died instead of. He uses the same word there. And we take our whole lives to embrace that. I'm still growing in grace. I sit alone with the Lord and I realize I can only take this by faith because there's such an injustice here. Lord, you're holy and you're pure. And I've got all kinds of stuff cooking that shouldn't be there. And I deserve death. And you took it for me, you died in my place. Caiaphas has no idea what he's saying. But he's speaking about the central truth of why Christ has come into the world. And John tells us that. You know, and of course, John tells us many things as God's, Well, we didn't understand that until he rose from the dead. Or we didn't understand that until we got the Holy Ghost. You know, and just, and you think of John, this old man, you know, uh, life expectancy, 45 then. He's 90 years old. And he's saying, you know, Caiaphas... He said that he was prophesying. God took his mouth, and he said something vastly different than he thought he was saying. And you and I need to remember the world around us, the difficulties that are around us, the world that's in us, the world that always wants to conquer, they don't stand a chance. They don't stand a chance. Because there is a vicarious substitutionary atonement that's taken place. And God has honored it. And Christ died on the cross. He said, it is finished, to tell us I Paid in full. He doesn't have a mortgage on us. He paid for us. Wonderful. And you and I need to grow in that. Now look, if you're here today and you don't know Christ... You know, you can have all kinds of ideas about the church. I remember before I was saved what I thought of the church, what I thought of Christians, you know, taking drugs. You know, you're out there. You have this idea of what the church is. If somebody would have told me that one day you'll be a pastor, I'd probably just punch them in the mouth. That was so far out of my thought process, you know. But understand this. You don't want to get the wrong impression. There is one who was spotless and pure, and he went to the cross because he loved you. And you deserved the death sentence. So he went and he died in your place. And because he was pure and didn't deserve to die, it was vicarious. His death then purchases a value because there was no sense in him dying. So the fact that he died for something that he didn't do, he purchased a value with that. And what God Almighty wants to do is extend that to you. He took the bullet. Well, that's a hero today. He died in your place. Well, somebody who takes a bullet, we think that's a hero. But this is eternal, what he did in his suffering and in what that purchased for us. Now look, it isn't that, we don't want to have the idea, you know, he wasn't drugged there against his will, like a lamb getting drugged. He was a sacrifice, willingly, Thou hast a body, thou hast prepared for me. Hebrews says, He saith as He cometh into the world. And He goes there willingly. If you don't know Him, you have to understand this. It says that we love Him because He first loved us. You're never going to love Jesus Christ until you realize how much he loves you. Because we're responders, right? You and I are responders. Somebody says to you, nye, 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 nye. You say to them, nye, 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 nye. You know, we're, we're responders. And when the Holy Spirit takes the truth, and he is here prophesying through Caiaphas, and tells us it was necessary for one man to die in your place so that mankind as a whole would not have to suffer that fate. So you have the freedom as an individual say, to say, I want that for me. I do. I deserve to die to be sentenced. He didn't. If he did that for me, I want to know him. Not church, not religion, him. Him. I want to know Him. If He did that for me, I want to know Him. If I have a a mark, if I have sin in my life that would separate me from a holy God forever, if there's a part of what I am and at the center of what I am that would kept that would have kept me from ever entering into the presence of holy God, to glory, to heaven. And if he went and paid that price that I was going to have to pay, and God's wrath was poured out on him instead of me, I want to know him. Hearing is the love of God, not that we... You know, not that we first loved him. He loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the place where his wrath could be satisfied. Now, understand, his wrath was satisfied on his son. He didn't hate his son. It wasn't satisfied there because he was punishing his son. Jesus, you know, the scripture says, for the glory that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That God so loved the world, that drives us crazy. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believe on him, which not perish, but have everlasting life. So God deals with it. He hates our sin, not his son. And his son bears our sin vicariously. And God the Father brings all of his wrath down on that, as eternal fire, not just there's the shedding of blood, there's the eternal part of that, which in the ages to come we're still going to be realizing. And he becomes the vicarious subs, the one who takes the punishment of another, the one who suffers on behalf of someone else, me, you. If you're here and you have never come to Christ, on your behalf. Somebody paid the price. Somebody took the bullet. Somebody died for you. Not religion. No no religion died for you. No church hung on the cross for you. No priest or pastor hung on the cross for you. The very Son of God, pure and holy, who came and walked among us, he suffered in your place. That's what Caiaphas is prophesying. Remarkably. Remarkably. And if you've never come to him, we want you to be able to do that today as we end this service. We'll give you an opportunity to do that. But here again, Caiaphas says it's necessary that one should die instead of, on behalf of, the people. that the whole nation perish not. John tells us this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, that, that he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. That's us. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold that he was going to bring in. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. So something's changed here. There's a big shift in John's gospel at this point in time. Because they needed, they they almost stoned him before out of emotion. They were doing things. Now there's been an official decision by the Sanhedrin that they have reason. They're going to put him to death. And they've agreed. There may have been dissenting voices, Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea. In fact, we we hear that in chapter 7. But the decision is made now. And it says, Jesus, therefore, because this decision is official, it's been made, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country, into the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. This Ephraim is not the territory of Ephraim. This is a small town called Ephraim. Um, It's north uh, of Jerusalem by Bethel, by about 12, 15 miles. And he goes there. Now, look. We don't know how long. Uh, We we know when he comes back to the, the, the feast at the house of Simon the leper, he's a week away from the cross. Here, he goes to Ephraim. Does he have a week there? Does he have two days there? Does he have two weeks there? But interesting, Ephraim's fruitful. And you can just imagine Jesus sitting with the guys. They haven't got a hold of it yet. But he must be thinking, Father John, it's going to be the last one. The rest will all be gone. Peter, I know. I he's going to hack that ear off. I know. That's who he is. We're going to use him. He's going to do good in the kingdom. And it was spring. It was Passover. You go there. It's beautiful over there in the spring. The flowers are exploding out of the ground. Bougainvillea is everywhere. I mean, it's just amazing tells us in the Song of Solomon that the sound of the turtle dove is in the air. These doves coming in the spring. Here doves go, coo, coo. Over there they go, burr, burr. They coo and purr at the same time. It's just a remarkable sound. It's beautiful. He's with them there. He has this time with them, quiet time in the spring. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. Many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves um, they they had to do ritual purification. sometimes it took seven days um, and and they would offer a sacrifice they go through this deal with the priests they have to the ablutions they'd have to wash themselves as we would call baptisms they have for different reason they have to do that in a mikvah a mikvah was that place where they where they wash themselves. If you're going to go to Israel with us next year, uh, we spend a day on the southern steps. And at the base of those steps, uh, they have found so far 48 mikvah have been excavated. And so we know there's a lot more there. And they would go through the cleansing before they would walk up those southern steps of the temple. The hulda gates are still there. Uh, they're filled in. But we, we have a, normally a Sunday morning service there looking at the Mount of Olives, talking about the next time he comes, it's wonderful. But they go up to purify themselves and then sought they for Jesus. They're up there. They're going through the process. And they're speaking among themselves and they, as they stood in the temple. And they said, what think ye? He will not come to the feast. And it's the double negative, the oi me there. And the idea is, what do you think? He certainly will not come to the feast. There's no way he's going to come to the feast. Look, he's going to come to the feast. Right? All along he said, my hour is not yet come. His hour was coming. Caiaphas couldn't kill him then. Nobody could have killed him before this because he has to die when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. That was his hour. And nothing could happen until what Caiaphas said was ready to happen. That he would die vicariously on behalf of the people. So Jesus, they're saying, there's no way he's going to come up. He's never going to. They want to kill him. He's not going to come up. And it says they know that because both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if anybody knew where he was, they should come and make that known and tell them. So we live in a world where these things are happening all around us. Um, There's another hour that's coming. That's his hour as well for you and I. The Lord descending with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Um, well, I don't believe in that, Pastor Joe. I'm a post-tribulationist. As your faith is, so be it unto you. You probably don't eat post-toasties either. I look at it this way. If, if there's a pre-tribulation rapture and we both go up, I'll be right forever and you'll be wrong forever. If he doesn't come before the tribulation, I can change my mind. You know. He had an hour then, there's an hour that's coming. In fact, now it's not an hour, it's a twinkling of an eye. And the same brood of characters that are antagonists in the spirit of Caiaphas that were filling that religious world now, there's the same brood filling the world now that we need to have a great. Ecumenical movement where all faiths are gathered together. We've got to have a global economy, global health rules, you know, and the Christians who want to, you know, resist this, those are the radicals, the fundamentalists, you know. Well, the problem is we don't fit in. We don't fit in. If you're trying to fit in, you're making a big mistake because we do not fit in. And if they don't want us here, Lord, Make them happy. <laughs> right? Right. But understand that all of the brooding and the mechanisms and the, and the things going on around us today, same God's still in control. He wrote all of these things and told us they would come. Nothing's happening without his sovereignty around us in the world right now. And it's still about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's coming again. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these things, Lord, as we look into them again. Things that we know so well, but things that refresh us, they renew us, they come back to life. We find they're deeper and they're broader, Lord. And Lord, your love is so demonstrated in all of it, Lord. Encourage our hearts today, Lord. We pray for those that hear, Lord, listening to the enemy, the under condemnation of the devil. We pray for those here, Lord, that are harder on themselves than you are, they haven't Come to that faith where they're trusting you, Lord, fully with their future, with redemption, your love and your forgiveness. Lord, let there be good medicine here for all of us. And Lord, as we have this privilege that no generation had to look at the media, to see the whole world, to see everything probably we shouldn't see, to see nations raging, to see a cauldron. Lord, let us... Remember that nothing's out of control. That the cauldron in this chapter was not out of control and neither is the one that's, that's brewing now. Lord, give us that faith. Let us be able to find rest when the rest of the world cannot. And we thank you for this. We put it before you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.